football is overspending. It's living way beyond its means. And it's the, no different at Bristol City, no different at Bristol Rovers either. Rovers are the same. So yeah. effectively, Steve Lansdowne, though, has put in 150, 160 million pounds of his own money in the club. He constantly changes basically the, the debt that's owed to him into equity, basically writing off chunks of money at a time. I'm Neil Max, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. It's all about football in this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked. Bristol, for a city of its size, has monumentally failed on the field. Bristol Rovers have never been in the top flight, and Bristol City have only been there for four seasons in the 1970s. Both clubs have been falling down their respective league tables, Bristol Rovers and Bristol City, and come under much fire and criticism. And then they both appointed brand new managers last week, and the fans are pretty excited about it. So we talk to Bristol Live's Bristol City reporter, Gregor McGregor. Can Bristol start to achieve? Why do we punt below our weight? And can we one day see a premiership club emerge from the city? Were your parents drunk when they named you? The long story is that basically it's a yeah. family tradition. So my granddad was very drunk and his granddad was very drunk. And he's back. No, no, he's, my granddad was Gregor James McGregor. His granddad was Gregor James McGregor. Keeps going back to, don't know if you've ever seen the film Rob Roy. Um, I have, yeah. He was a McGregor. He was one of the first McGregors. Ah, so you are Scottish then? Because when I first came across you, was actually on Twitter before we met, I did think you had a proper thick Scottish accent and you were Scottish because you also answer <laughs> tweets with I, I, all the time. And I met you. I was I was thoroughly disappointed. Yeah, my, my father's side, grandfather, he was from sort of Perthshire in Scotland originally, but he moved down to the famous... Scottish area of Kent, and then uh, from, okay, there, yeah. from there, he was yeah. working out in Hawaii during World War Two. Okay. Yeah, as I, as I say, it's just a family tradition. Just for loyal listeners that aren't sport fans, when did you start in this role? Exactly four years ago. Okay, and because you, you don't, you, you support Bath City, don't you? Is that right? Honestly, I'm an absolute football geek. Hence, I got this job. But I support yeah. like five or six different teams. A sport, Bath City, Spurs. I've got some foreign teams. I used to live abroad, so picked up a few teams when I did that. And obviously, you get invested in the teams that you cover as well. So I do, honestly... You feel like a Bristol City fan, yeah, though, yeah? You absolutely. Feel like, yeah. Makes makes a heck of a difference to, to my weekend as well as everybody else's. Traditionally, I think that, that football reporters often were supporters of the club they covered, but that's changing quite a lot, isn't it? And is that because I guess it's quite tricky being objective if you've been a fan from a boy? Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Listen, I when I started, Adam Baker, the press officer at Bristol City, and I always remember yeah. him screaming in pleasure when Bristol City scored from the back of the press box. <laughs> yeah. Now, I I try and maintain a bit of professionalism and yeah, remain yeah. objective, and I think it does help that I'm not a supporter at times. Let's talk a little bit about fan base then, because I do think that football fans, unlike any other sport, are notoriously fickle. Would you say the Bristol City fans have taken to you? I think there's a proportion that have. Uh, I think a small proportion who haven't done it. Because I've had to, unfortunately, block a few people on social media, and, which I never understand because essentially I'm a guy who's just 
writing about Bristol City, and I've never met these people, and yet work. And from reading my work, they ascertain that I'm some kind of, well, they're probably quite right that I'm some some kind of idiot. And uh, and, and just yeah. they, they take that instant dislike. When, when I started the job, I thought, I'm going to make it my mission. Because we all know that football's so tribal. The passion is, is so fervent. And I made it my mission. I thought... I'm going to try really hard not to block anybody on social media. And after like just a few days, that gone. A few days? A few yeah. days? Yeah. Wow, I, wow. I, I think it's by nature what you report on. And when I started the job, I was reporting on Lee Johnson coming to the end of his eight-game losing streak where he set the equal record for the most losses in a row. So you can imagine that the City fans all wanted him out of that mm. stage. And it was a highly emotive time to start reporting on the club. To be honest, it well, coming in as a, a fresh journalist, it was a little bit difficult and not, not the greatest of times. But to you've written that out, though, haven't you? I think you have been taken on pretty well. And you're always going to have a minority. It's just quietly going about your business week in, week out, week in, week out. And then before you know it, they think you're all right. Yeah, yeah, but possibly. I, I, I suppose part of it is... And you maybe don't realise this from the outside is just the scrutiny that every single comment that I make gets, and and that sounds probably mm. stupid because it's probably nothing on par with what the manager gets. But honestly, I probably think as well in the city, I might be might be wrong. My sense is that I think that Bristol City fans are probably harder to please than Ravers. Would that be fair? Um, in, ter- yeah. in terms of popularity, like you know, in terms of a love hate thing. I don't know, sometimes some of the comments I hear about the PA announcers, Downsy, particularly if they've lost, and it's like pretty vitriolic, some of it, and it's quite hardcore. And I'm like, whoa, this is a guy who's just reading results out at halftime. Do you know what I mean? He's not he's not responsible for the result. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I mean, I think there's obviously a certain element of supporters of every club who can be pretty vicious with with everybody. Um, I'm not too sure. Yeah. Uh, are there more at City? Don't know. On that one, maybe. maybe. I don't know. I, the reason I say that is because I think sometimes there is a sense of resignation amongst Bristol Rovers fans, which is a different level of expectation than there is amongst City fans for for obvious reasons that they are, you know, bigger club, bigger resource, bigger infrastructure. People get very excited and carried away, and you know, City are going to win the league by Christmas, and everything's amazing. <laughs> and then suddenly there's this like Shakespearean tragedy where everything just falls down like a pack of cards. And come around about now they're calling for everybody to be sacked in the club. I've seen this cycle happen year upon year upon year for a long time. Obviously, that has happened again, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I think there is something in that. I I do wonder if a little bit of that is to do with the messaging from the club and in that they are always saying that they're competing for promotion and they want to get up there straight away. And I think Steve Lansdowne has said a few times, hasn't he, that they, they want to be in the Premier League as soon as possible. So Steve Lansdowne is the owner of Bristol City. Currently his son, John Lansdowne, is the chair of the club. He's said to be worth £1.72 billion. Pounds. He's a local boy. And he made his money through Hargreaves Lansdowne. He currently resides Guernsey. It's not about building slowly year after year. It's about getting up there pronto. And even now with the new manager who's come in, Nigel Pearson, really good appointment. A guy who's been there, done it. He's got the promotions on his CV. And even now, what he's been saying is it's not about the potential. In fact, he's banned the P word from his press conferences recently. It's all about the here and now. So I do wonder... 
if a little bit of that is to do with what the club is communicating. Staying with the role as a football journalist, there is a very fine balancing act between being the fan's voice, asking the right questions, holding the club to account, but also maintaining a relationship with the football club. How difficult or how easy is that? It's 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 been a, a little bit of both in in almost equal measure actually because it is difficult without doubt. I mean it's a high wire act, and yeah, there is a relationship to be maintained there. But you're right. I, I've always believed that fundamentally you're always a representative of the fans. So if you're going to side one side, it's got to be with the fans. That's your job. But at the same time, yeah, there, there is a relationship to be had there with the club and. It's all very interesting, the, the the strategies. I'm always aware of this. Yeah, they want to control the message, don't they? Their job is to manage the message and try and steer your message in the direction that they want it to be, I suppose. Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of the club, when I started, it was it was pretty easy to do because I didn't have a lot going for me in terms of I hadn't covered the club for too long, didn't have too much of a following. Yeah. And so from their side, there wasn't too much to worry about, I guess, and I could just slap them as hard as I wanted, really. But I suppose yeah. as as you go along, then they try and offer access and things like this. But What do you mean? Well, we all know, if you're working in the football journalism industry, then we all know that the control of access is huge. And basically, the clubs will offer you access with certain people, with certain players at certain times. And it's obviously whenever it suits them. And yeah, yeah, to withhold any of that at any point is is one lever. What you're saying is that you'll be offered access to players if you go easy on X or Y. But and I, I say this because this has happened to me directly. You know, for those that don't know my background, it's, it's less in reporting on matches, but is in, you know, lots of long-form sport interviews and, and stuff like that. And that you'll be denied access to certain individuals or players or, you know, there are some journalists in the country that are banned from press conferences, aren't they, for example, for asking questions that the club didn't take to. So there's always that juggling act between holding to account challenging and scrutinising as a journalist you should be and maintain that relationship is bloody difficult yeah yeah I've, I've been banned by Bristol City from a press conference before but that that was at the manager's behest that was under Lee Johnson he he didn't yeah. like the questions I was asking he refused to answer those he banned me from yeah. a press conference as a punishment actually because I broke some team news before a game and he felt that I'd affected the team's performance by doing that so I have been banned before yeah. uh, in terms of yeah withholding access i want to make clear actually that the club has never explicitly done that okay but i think we have to accept that it's a, a widely held belief that that is commonplace across football journalism whereas traditionally they would have to have that relationship with the local press to get messages out to the fan base but now with social media and you know most football clubs have got their all singing and dancing media teams i think they probably feel that they don't need to engage in the press in the same way that they used to? Actually, yeah, there have been quite important people in the football industry, I think, who've recognised that, that you need the objective questions being asked. So there is a role definitely still for for independent journalists. I'm a yeah, strong I, believer, yeah strong I think you're right. There are times when, if I will watch some of the Bristol City interviews, and it, you know, it's clearly obvious there isn't going to be anything that's too tricky or too challenging. Yeah, absolutely. It's not quite China State TV, but sometimes it feels just not far off that. And I think it's okay for a while, but fans want something with a bit of teeth. Not just Bristol yeah. City in general. I just think it's a bit dull. 
Yeah, that's why I say, I mean, every club has got its idiosyncrasies. And there are some clubs out there who I think are quite forward thinking that involve independent journalists in their coverage. I like the idea that they're willing to basically not hide behind anything. How I see it is that those views are coming anyway on other platforms and in other media. Absolutely. So there's no point in pretending they're not there because they are there. This is my personal opinion. I'm not, you know, not saying you think this. That whilst the Bristol City coverage looks great and it feels great and it's very slick, you know, sort of like the commentator Toby. I know Toby, you know, pretty well. I think he's he's great, but I get the feeling that he, he's kind of he can't really say too much. Do you know what I mean? That he has to sort of stay on message a bit. That's an area where independent reporters like myself gain some traction because I I, I think sometimes the club has has great coverage but it lacks a bit of authenticity sometimes it just feels like it's a little bit soulless because there's a middle ground of course you can't throw somebody under a bus all the time if you're, if you're working for the club of course and there's certain things that have to stay in a football club that aren't for the public domain i, I understand that so it's getting a balance but actually if you if you can kind of push the envelope a little bit that way and allow some of those more uh, challenging voices yeah yeah that's possibly where some of the criticism has come at Bristol City, particularly for Mark Ashton. What's his, his chief operating officer? Is that his title or CEO? I never quite know. He's, he's it is. CEO these days. Yeah, CEO. So, so he's yeah. CEO. That that because that the, the only interviews you see are him with the internal media people. When he does go on to say Radio Bristol with Jeff, for example. He just gets utter grilling and it's just an uncomfortable listen. It's a brilliant interview, but it's an uncomfortable listen. It's the only time he's ever asked a challenging question by anyone. And, it, and that it comes across that this is stuff that should be talking about in the club because it's going to come. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, it's going to come. You can only get to some point with their aspirations where you're not going to feel the criticism. What point do you acknowledge it and, and bring it in? And both clubs have, but, but I, I would say... The fact that Rovers have kind of realised that and, and brought in Gas Chat, a podcast called Gas Chat, on match days. There are equivalents podcasts fans do at City. One stream in Bristol. One stream in Bristol, that's the one, yeah. So if you worked at a football club, is that something that you would try and do? Yeah, I, I, I would absolutely would. It's a difficult one, though, because everything is cool when you're winning. It's just when you're losing. Nobody cares when you're winning. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's obviously throw that in, because that's oh so important nobody cares honestly they don't if everybody's winning it's all tickety-boo but yeah as soon as they start losing then somebody's got to pay for it there's got to be a scapegoat whether it's mark ashton or, or yeah or any any of the media guys or whatever then somebody's got to pay for it i think it's probably for those football clubs benefits to actually maybe take a bit more of a risk because i think that that's where the audience will be from city's point of view to be fair to them they've kind of done that at yeah. times if you think about the gifts that was hugely successful. Let's be let's play for the club there. Yeah, yeah they did they brilliant. did well there. Yeah, that was yeah. that was innovative. The PR and marketing is social media is, is brilliant. From what I can gather, the shirt sponsorship at Bristol City after that season with all the gifts and they, they led the way, didn't they? Other clubs were copying them. That enabled them to get a national shirt sponsor, which was about four or five times the, the value of what they had before. Yeah, just poss- just because the, the, you know, yeah. the, is that wrong? Oh, I've got your amount of detail. I've, I've, I've just um, I'm, I'm not too no. sure on the figures. You'd probably. Uh, was, I'm, yeah. That's not something to be honest. I've I, heard I was, too much about. I but. was told. I was told that. I was told that on the on a. Yeah, that that, 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 that and because because people wanted to be associated with the football. So yeah, staying topical and being across all the big breaking stories in Bristol is what the cable likes to do, and in particular likes to drill into some of the 
the detail beyond the headlines. Hence this conversation with Gregor. And we want to continue to do the same. So if you want to still see this podcast, having interesting guests related to key issues breaking in the city, then you can become a member. You can chuck some money in every month and you can shape what we do online and in the newspaper. So let's talk football. Both clubs have come in for loads of criticism. Rovers have had a revolving door of managers. As much as we praise their stadium, their coaching, for their stadium, they've got a scouting network, all this kind of stuff behind the scenes, the media department, the community department's fantastic. No one can doubt and question the investment that Steve Lansdowne's put in that, in that football club and in Bristol Sport. Um, but people have questioned his investment on the pitch. He was accused of sort of in essentially bottling it or going for the cheap, easy option uh, in appointing Dean Holden, who was Lee Johnson's number three, I think with four or five games league experience, after going on TalkSport and saying, we are um, you know, we're looking to... <laughs> yeah, breath of fresh air and Lee Johnson's taken us as far as he can and, and then completely regaling on that. And a lot of fans were quite angry and a lot of fans have sort of have taken out their anger on Mark Ashton, but not really taking it out on Steve Lansdowne, the sort of sacred cow here. Um, before we talk about what they have done now, at that time when that happened, when Dean Holden was appointed, when Mark Ashton came out and said, no, 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 he is our first choice, what did you honestly think? You thought it was bollocks, didn't you? Well, I could see the direction they went in, but I just never accepted. I wrote about this straight afterwards. I didn't accept their explanations. Yeah. And this is why Mark Ashton got criticised, because basically they were saying that he was a, a good human being. It was essentially character-driven, saying that he knew the culture of the club. Yeah. And I completely get that. I understand that, yeah. because I think other people mm-hmm. wanted to come in, big namers, people with experience, but they probably didn't know who the kid in the reserves is, that, they, that hopefully they're going to be playing yeah. the next couple of years and he's going to be worth £10 million down the, the line. So I, mm-hmm. I always understood why they were probably going in the direction of Dean Holden. I just don't think the message was clearly communicated. I do wonder if in a few years' time we'll look back on that period and think, why the fuck did they give the job to Dean Holden? The background yeah. is obviously the pandemic and the effect of COVID-19 yeah. on no revenues, mm. no fans. COVID games. appointment, I think, a, people yeah, have said, haven't they? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. COVID. I mean, and this is not to take away from him. What a, what a lovely bloke he was. And this is the thing, you know, what a top bloke, Dean Holden. But straight away, I thought, oh, God. When you look at the Dean Holden appointment and when you then look at the yeah. statements made by the, the board, Steve Lansdowne, Mark Ashton and Dean Holden, you you could make a pretty strong mm. argument for people making it up as they went along. Now that might not be the case, but but I think you could make a strong argument mm. for that being the case. Well, anyway, that they got that wrong. I you know it's fairly obvious now, and, um, and both clubs being accused of playing kind of safe, and then suddenly, simultaneously, was it on the Sunday night? Joey Barton's appointed at Bristol Rovers. Nigel Pearson's appointed at Bristol City the following day. Two very brave, bold, risky characters, but with, you know, big, I would say, national high-profile names, probably for the first time in both clubs' history. You know, we've talked sports, Sky Sports, BBC Nationals are sniffing around both clubs. They're both big names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, good good for the profile of the city. And, yeah, two two ambitious appointments, really. and. I, I mean, obviously, every City fan I've seen is very, very happy with the 
the appointment of Pearson, nobody's complaining. Yeah. The fan base seems united and appointment and, and somebody's finally come in with that experience. But let's, yeah, it is the the opposite of Dean Holden, isn't it? It's somebody who's come in Completely, from outside yeah. who's not going to take any crap from anybody and he's going to say it how it is. And also he just has pedigree. He has experience and he talks with an authority and obviously he's got off to a flyer, you know, two out of two. You know, we're only a couple of games in. They're both making positive noises. Just, I think it's just the confidence in the in the press conference, isn't it? In the interviews, it just feels different. It feels like yeah. both of them are stepping down to come to Bristol City and Bristol Rovers r- rather than the other way round. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I'd agree with you on that. Who's the better appointment? Who's the better appointment out of Barton and Pearson for you? Well, I'd say Pearson because he's gone and done it, hasn't he? He's got the CV. But I suppose Barton hasn't as a, as a manager, but then I guess it comes with who would win I, in a fight. Yeah, I, I think I'd go Barton. I'd go Barton. He's just... Let's break it down. So if it's in a ring and with rules, I think I would have money on Pearson. If it was in a street, I think I would go for Barton every day of the week. Pearson, Pearson's getting on a bit. He's 57, though. He, he, I, know he likes, <laughs> I know he likes his hiking and everything, paddle, paddle boarding, yeah. horse riding he's got into recently. So horse riding. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so I think if if it went the distance, then he, he might be good. I don't yeah. know. With with Barton, I just always feel he, he can fight probably dirty, can't he? You know. Yeah, he's kind of he's waiting in the car park for you, isn't he? At three o'clock in the morning, it's cheese wire. I always think he's like the football equivalent of Joe Pesci. Yeah, I, I, I can see where you go with that one. That, I also thought he's a very good player. I know obviously he's had his issues and stuff like that, but he's at, he's quite he's a bit more interesting than most football players he reads Spartan I think he reads like Kafka and Nietzsche. he's a fan yeah. of the Smiths and, and all yeah. this sort of stuff it's a bit it's a bit different you know Pearson really talked him up last week in his press conference saying that he's a, a very bright manager and, and, and yeah people don't get that from Joey Barton I, I, I have to be honest I, I can recognise that in him and I can see why he'd be a very good manager I can see why he'd yeah. inspire his squad and I don't think you would mess about yeah. with him in charge, would you? And that's what it's about, isn't it? Getting, getting the, extracting the most. Do you think this is the, the city have got it right now? And do you think finally this is the time now? Everything is in place at Bristol City Football Club off the field. It's the right manager to take him in the Premier League. I do. I think all the ingredients are there. Basically, money so often talks in the game. Not always. But, but most of the time it does. Not necessarily transfer fees, but wage budgets. That's the big thing, wage budget. Mm-hmm. Best players are always yeah. paid the most money. And so yeah. City's wage budget is middle of the table, but they've got a bit of leeway to spend a bit more. And when you pass yeah. all that up with Nigel Pearson coming in with his experience, and Steve Lansdowne hinted very much the other week that there's a bit of leeway for spending in the summer with financial fair play, then... That's why I believe that, yeah. yeah, everything is in place now for City over the next year or so to have a real good go. There has been a strategy to recruit and develop young players and sell them on. So from Lloyd Kelly to Bobby Reed, uh, Adam Webster, Josh Brainhill, Joe Bryan, decent money. You know, you're talking, what was it, almost £20 million for Webster? Uh, yeah, more. £14 million for Kelly. You know, even Bobby, I think, went for about 10, didn't he, or 10 and a half, something like that. But, you know, that's decent money and that's good business. And, you know, you could say that's a good strategy for the club. And clearly, those players felt they couldn't fulfil their premiership ambitions at City at that moment. Some fans, I think, felt cynical about that and disheartened that you're selling your best players. 
Uh, but that does happen, as you say. That you know, that's the nature of, of, of football. But the most of that money wasn't reinvested on the pitch, and 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 where it has been invested, it hasn't always come off. That's been where some of the frustration that's been aimed at Mark Ashton has come from. Could some of that frustration equally have been aimed at Lansdowne? Yeah, it, it should be aimed at the Lansdowne family, really, because it's their philosophy. But what you've got to understand is the the financial background and. Bristol City are, are losing money every single year. Steve Lansdowne puts in what is estimated between five, six million, seven million pounds every year just for the club to basically to break even. They haven't made a profit mm. under his tenure since he's been in charge, apart from one year. I think it was not the latest accounts, but the one before that, when they effectively sold 25, 26 million pounds worth of players, some of those guys you mentioned. So, Football's an expensive business. Is that yeah. how does that compare to other clubs? Are other clubs losing money in the same year on year yeah, as well? Ev- or is- everybody in the championship, apart from those clubs who've got parachute payments from the Premier League. This is the big this is the big talking point across the EFL. This is why they want to reform it all. This is why the, the talks have been going on with Project That's the Big English Picture. Football League for, yeah, yeah. Project Big yeah. Picture. That was that was the big news last what summer, just before there's there's more talks in the works. We're gonna hear more of that later this year because the FA is committed to reforming the game because basically football is overspending. It's living way beyond its means. And it's the, no different at Bristol City, no different at Bristol Rovers either. Rovers are the same. So yeah. effectively, Steve Lansdowne, though, has put in 150, 160 million pounds of his own money in the club. He constantly changes basically the, the debt that's owed to him into equity, basically writing off chunks of money at a time. So he is putting money in there all the time. So he could argue that yeah. if anybody else wants to come in and put in more money than him, go ahead and do it. Is there anybody else out there to do that? And secondly, could they do it? Because you've got financial fair play, which actually restricts how much you can do that by. Financial fair play in effect is to try and limit if like what, like what Man City did really, somebody just come in and wave a checkbook to make it about you know, the, the, the kind of the general principle of what you earn, you spend, or at least to try and bring football back into more a sustainable, reasonable model. That's the thinking behind it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You can only make a, a 13 million pound loss each year up to thirty nine yeah. million pounds over a rolling three year period, and that's why we've seen several clubs fall foul of that over the last few seasons, and why you've had the likes of Derby County, Aston Villa, and Sheffield Wednesday mysteriously selling off their stadiums to to bring in a big right. one off chunk of money ahead of uh, yeah. reporting their local. Why does football lose so much money? Because they're paying the players too much, and they want they want they want success too much. It is it is fundamentally comes down to that. City's wage bill is huge; it's thirty three million pounds for in the latest accounts that puts them yeah. middle of the table. But it's that's gone up some. I don't know, 20, 30% over the last five, six years. To be fair to the club, they did yeah. warn of wage inflation being a major issue several years ago. So is the argument then that there should be a wage cap like there is in American football or or I think there's, isn't there something like similar in rugby, I think? Uh, yeah. Is that the only sustainable solution to this? Otherwise, it will just continue to be run at a loss. There's several different ways you could look at it. I mean, the Lansdowns are big advocates of the wage cap. Yeah, they've, they've I think they've almost... I wouldn't say spearheaded talks, but Mark Ashton's got a role on the EFL board. This is part of why Mark Ashton is valued so highly at the club is because he's got yeah. weight that he can throw around at 
national level yeah. and represent the club and their their interests. Because he sits on EFL board, doesn't he? He's like the rep for CEOs in the championship, correct? Yep, yep, that's correct. And so he's he's got that position where he can influence. Are City in the minority? Are there other clubs that are pushing for a wage cap? Well, if you believe some of the, the tabloids, then there was a leak recently saying that there isn't much support of it. Interestingly, Mark Ashton, when we spoke to him the other week, suggested that there was a yeah. lot of support for it. I think we're going to see some of this come out in the news in the next couple of months. So uh, it could be yeah. one to uh, watch this space. What about the PFA? Where did the PFA stand on this? Well, that's the Players Football Association who represent players. Political avid listeners of this show will know about kind of the, the, the means of production. Ironically, football is one of the only sports where the means of production, i.e., the, the the workers, the footballers that bring the money in actually are very well paid. That doesn't always happen in a lot of industries. Pre the PFA championing and pushing for more control to players rather than football clubs, because football clubs traditionally sort of creamed money off the back of players, didn't it? So, But I, I guess that it, we've gone from sort of one extreme to the other, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, that's sports and the entertainment industry, isn't it? And yeah, I mean, on the PFA, they've, they've had a big role to play recently in terms of player welfare and COVID protocols. And yeah, I'm not too sure where they stand, to be honest, as a stakeholder in, in the game going forward. As long as the players are protected, that, that's... Um... They would want players' wages to keep going up, I would imagine, wouldn't they? Probably the PFA, I would have, I would have, I would have expected. No? I'm not, well, I'm not too sure. I think it would be more to do with the health of their client. What we've seen is a lot more players out of contract. There's been a big uptake on players on free contracts and not being offered new deals. I think this is a big talking point coming into this summer. certainly affects Bristol City. that They haven't offered a lot of their senior players new deals because... They don't know where they're going to be financially in, in the next few months. Because they're on too much, bit too big money, yeah? I, uh, yeah, I think that'll be a part yeah. of it. It's not just that. It's because the clubs have rightfully said you just don't know for certain when fans are coming back, although obviously that's changed a little bit recently with, yeah. with the latest yeah. roadmap. Yeah, let's talk about that, that impact. Obviously, fans are not allowed in stadiums at the moment. How much of an impact has that had financially on... Um, Football in general, but obviously in relation to Bristol City, the, the club that you report on. Well, OK, put it this way. In their last accounts, the ones we talked about when they made a profit, I think they made a profit of around £10 million. And in the last accounts, it was a loss of £10 million. So it's quite a big swing. And the right. major reason is because of the loss of revenues from not having crowds yeah. and obviously concerts at Ashton Gate or the hospitality, the corporate section, et cetera, et cetera. It's been a massive swing to a £10 million loss. Yeah, That sounds huge, but then that is literally the value of one player, like Adam Webster, at the same time, though? That is, yeah, that is true. And I mean, let's bring it circle round circle to what you were saying about before, to the academy. I, I think there was a little bit of consternation in the Bristol City Academy a few years ago when they started selling these talents coming through because I think everybody assumes that when you say you're going to build your club on local young talent that that is going to bring you up to success like Manchester United did Fergie's fledglings bringing yeah. through these guys but then when City brought these guys through and suddenly sold them all off it was hold on a second yeah. we didn't realize you were bringing through these talents to sell them off and to sustain the football club but that's that's what City have done and I actually think they're doing the right thing there and 
yeah, as you say, those players realised they weren't going to get to the Premier League straight away with City. Yeah. But maybe maybe over the longer term, City will benefit. But it does send a bit of a message though, doesn't it? It, it sends a message of... You're a selling um, club. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's difficult when the message is we want to be in the Premier League at the same time. I think if, if the clarity... And I'll go back to that communications thing again. If the clarity is right... We do want to be in the Premier League. We're not quite ready yet. We've got everything in place. We're building the foundations from the stadium to the training ground to the building the the, the, the scouting network. We're bringing young players through. We're selling them on. Uh, in time, we, we are readying ourselves. But that isn't the message. The message is yeah, we want to be in the Premier League. And then this sort of stuff makes it look as if, to me, it feels like if you did, you wouldn't do that. If you're the most cynical of supporters, then they would say yeah. that that's because that kind of messaging doesn't sell tickets doesn't sell season cards as well as saying listen guys we're, we're trying to get to the premier league in 2025 we're building slowly we'll, yeah. we'll get there so yeah I, whether that's the case or not i don't know i think it maybe goes back to the beginning and and being a little bit honest and say listen we're going to try and get there and it might take a bit of time but we'll, we'll do it on our way yeah I, I think that message is fine yeah same here. Yeah, well, exactly. And it's kind of saying, well, you know, when we get there, we want to get there and stay there. We don't want to just bounce up. But, you know, clubs do go up and then come back down. So I understand the rationale, but it's that it's the mixed signals for me that probably that is confusing. Yeah. But as you say, you're not going to go, no, we don't want to go up. But there are people, you know, some quite prominent people in the city I've spoken to that have gone, nah, they don't want to go up. They're quite happy where they are. They're doing all right. They're in a championship. Do they want to rush it and get in the Premier League? Because it could all be like a pack of cards after then. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. And yeah, you look at the progression of the club, and maybe that's part of it as well. That maybe the fans don't see everything going on behind the scenes. That it is making great strides in terms of the academy, the training ground, the stadium. The stadium, honestly, is so good. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm biased yeah. here, but I go to every Championship ground, and I honestly think it's it's, it's the best. I mean. Which, which ground? Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, it is in terms of also the atmosphere and everything. I bloody love all the, the little bars outside yeah. where you can buy a cider. You've got the bands playing and yeah. all that stuff. It's yeah. brilliant. That's probably where part of that expectation is coming from as well, I think, because it feels ready. If you're going to every away game, and there's a sizable amount of fans that go to away games and they're looking at other stadiums and thinking, oh, we're as big as this club. We can compete. You know, Bristol is the sixth, seventh biggest city in the UK. And it's the only city that's, you know, not had a club in the Premier League or, you know, a big city that's not had a club in the Premier League. Nottingham's, Nottingham's a smaller city than Bristol. They've, they've got two clubs. So I think you can do it. Do you think that's the general perception? You're obviously all around the country. You obviously talk to other football journalists. What's the sense outside of Bristol? Because I think we're in a bit of a bubble. And I think that's the problem that City have had is that sometimes they think they're bigger than they are in relation to Rovers. And we're just a bit isolated. And I think probably some of the other big cities don't actually think that Bristol is a football city, really. I'd completely agree. <laughs> yeah, still a lot of that. Yeah, when I speak to other journalists, then, yeah, when you say you're a Bristol City support, it's okay, mate. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, what, what are you doing at the football? No, but... Um, you should be covering the rugby, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think there is a little bit of that still looking upon Bristol as a backwater for sport. Is it? Do you think it is? Do you think we are? Yeah, I, I, I do. To be fair to them, why shouldn't they? Because Bristol haven't had any success, have they? Yeah, why that is, though, why it's been so long, 
I don't know. That's that's hard to fathom, really. You you probably have a better answer than me. It's a really difficult one. It's a bit around uh, it, it, traditionally West Country being more rugby. You know, you go up to Birmingham, that's south to Southampton. There isn't really a Premier League club, so we're not City are not really competing against loads of other clubs around here. Mm. Whereas if you're in Sunderland, you're champion against Newcastle. If you're in, you know, if you're in the Northwest, you've got all the clubs there. If you're in the Midlands, you're in London, and competition pushes you on. Maybe bringing it around again. Maybe that what we were talking about before about that rivalry between City and Rovers. Maybe, maybe uh, for a while that was enough, and it stagnated. Yeah, ambition. I don't know. But yeah. I always think, and part of the reason why I, why I took this job actually was because I. I hate to use the P word again, the potential, but I do think mm. Bristol has got so much going for it. And I always mention this when people talk to me about the future for Bristol and City in particular, is that I feel yeah. that with more people in the future, maybe leaving London with the electrification of the M4 corridor or the corridor west, basically, uh, and the trains yeah. uh, making it commutable between London and Bristol. I just wonder if you'll have more people out yeah. this way in the future and, and a bigger more of a hunger for a genuinely successful football team. I imagine it's only a matter of time, perhaps. If neither Lansdowne or Well are prepared to bankroll the club on the field and take them to the next level, I'm pretty sure there's going to be buyers that would now mm. in, in, would invest. As you just said, they can see the potential in a city like Bristol. But in fairness, both of them have done that. They've, they've, they've put the money where their mouth is, so let's see what happens. So we're going to end on football, football. Uh, so where are Bristol City going to finish this season? Eighth. Eighth, okay. A respectable eighth from where they were, from Pearson taking over. Yeah, yeah. that's a rise up the table, but I think they'll just be short of the, the playoff positions. Bristol Rovers? Bristol Rovers. Bristol Rovers. I will go for 20... 20... <laughs> 20, 20... Go on. 21st. Hurry up. What, oh, sorry, relegated 20, or not? 20, no, 20th. There is, let me just, <laughs> uh, yeah, 20th. So I, I'm tipping them to survive by one place. Uh, okay, so you're sort of covering both bases because you can't say they're going to go up too high because the City fans will kill you. <laughs> but also you've got to keep the sort of things open so you're not too cruel. That's a PR political answer if I've never heard one, McGregor. It goes back to the beginning, doesn't it? When, <laughs> when will City get in the Premier League? How long will it be until Bristol City are in the Premier League? Well, the the problem for them is competing against the size with parachute payments. And until that's resolved, I can't see it happening anytime soon. But there is some light on the horizon. Okay. It, there are talks that it might be disbanded and it might be reformed. So I would say two or three years when, when the training ground's up and running, they've got more talent coming through because you always do get so much talent. I get... I get football agents coming to me and saying there's so much talent in Bristol all the time. I'm going to set up an office in yeah. Bristol. There's so much talent there. And yeah. there is, there is. So, yeah, I think in a couple of years, um, City will benefit from that and, and go up. Cool. Lovely, Gregor. This has been a good chat. We've we've spoken for quite some time. Is it, how does it feel to be the one answering questions, not, well, or, or, or responding to long-winded statements from me <laughs> <laughs> um, as opposed to asking them? It's just like talking to Lee Johnson again. No, uh, yeah, no, <laughs> enjoyed it, enjoyed it, yeah. Lovely. All right, mate, we take steady and um, look forward to reading your uh, report. So who have City got next? QPR on Saturday. So QPR on Saturday is the next game. Cool. All the best, mate. Thank you for uh, being so accommodating and open and hopefully I haven't got you in trouble with anyone. Hopefully not. 
Hopefully not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hopefully not, though. No. Just blame me. Just blame me. You've been good. All right. Nice one, mate. Take care and we'll uh, we'll chat soon. Cheers. Uh, just reflecting on my chat with uh, the amazingly named Gregor McGregor. I think that was the most revealing thing to me, was finding out his name, where that came from, and this long line going all the way back to Rob Roy. Uh, yeah, enjoyed that chat. Obviously, it was sort of framed a lot more in the context of Bristol City, because that's who he reports on, but we talked a little bit about Rovers as well. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens moving forward with both clubs now, having come in for a bit of stick for decisions they've been making about recruitment. Um, of players and in particular recruitment of managers they've now been quite bold and brave hence why we wanted to talk about football this week and we have you know as a city the size underachieved across all sport really but in particular in in football I still don't really quite understand why that is um, it's many layers to it really all we can do is sort of hope that that changes sometime soon for both sets of fans I really enjoyed and was interested in that bit around finance understanding what goes on behind in football clubs how the English Football League has started to cap for the amount of money you're allowed to spend I wasn't aware that actually Bristol City Football Club are at the the forefront of pushing for a wage cap also nice to get a kind of journalist perspective about what it's like having to report on football clubs and also having to maintain a relationship with them which is very similar I think to some of the local democracy reporters with the council or political reporters have to do the same thing how do you balance that between holding to account asking tough questions but also being granted access is tricky even more so I would say in football which is more loaded is always having to try to appeal to the fan at any stage you could be jumped there have been some sport reporters at the Bristol Post in the past that have had that and treated, treated quite quite unfairly in some regard or certainly um, not been particularly popular but he is actually he, and I think he's been taken to the City fans' hearts because he is quite straight-talking guy. He just kind of gets his head down, gets on with it, reports what he sees. Yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a detour this week. Talking football made it quite a nice change from politics, actually. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Mags, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable along with 2,000 others to create a new kind of media for the city.